You may know that 40 days after his resurrection, 50 days after his resurrection, Jesus ascended to heaven. I don't know how much you think about the ascension, but I've got some questions about it. Do you ever ever read the Bible and wonder, but what was going on there? How did that happen? It's a good thing to do when you're reading. So Luke mentions the account of Jesus' ascension in two places. At the end of his gospel, he says this, while he, Jesus, was blessing them, he left them and was taken up into heaven. That's a pretty short summary, don't you think? In his second book, Acts, he just says this. After he said this, what he'd been saying to them, he was taken up before their very eyes and a cloud hid him from their sight. I want to I ask, Luke says, he was, as he was blessing them, while he was blessing them, was he mid-blessing and he suddenly ascends? Did he not get to finish the end of his blessing? I don't know. How many people were there? He doesn't tell us. I want to know this. I don't need to know. I'm just curious. How fast did he ascend? (laughs) Have you not wondered that? You're not thinking hard enough when you read. Was it like the space shuttle going off? Or was it a very serene lifting? And what about the cloud that hid him from their sight? Was, was that just like a regular cloud? It was a cloudy day. Luke doesn't, Luke doesn't start and say, well, it was 8 o'clock in the morning and the weather was quite cloudy that day. And ah, that's why a cloud hid him from their sight. Or may, maybe it was a cloud of God's presence. Maybe. We don't know. Either way, anyway, the ascension is a much neglected but vital part of Jesus' life and ministry. But why is it so important? Well, there are a whole load of reasons. Here are a few. Firstly, because Jesus' ascension back to the Father marked his enthronement as king, sitting down, as the language says, at God's right hand on his throne. It's really important because there's a sense in which at that point, you could say the Trinity was reunited. Now, I don't believe the Trinity was ever split up. But you could, in a sense, say the Trinity was reunited. But now, different to the whole of eternity past. You see, the Son was reunited in his ascension with the Father and the Holy Spirit, but now as God and man. There is now forever humanity in the Godhead. And it's really important as well because... He ascended to continue his work and his ministry. He ascended, of course, and sat down, that's part of the the picture, at the Father's right hand because his work was done. Yes? Everything he came to accomplish was done. But he also ascended to take up, you could say, new work, new ministry. He sat down. But he did not sit back. And so in this summer series that we're going through, we're answering this question that having ascended, what is Jesus doing now? And we're answering it with five answers. We've said that he is reigning. We've said that he is interceding. He's praying for us. That he's advocating. Next week that he's waiting. And this morning's focus, 
that he has ascended to send. Let me read you a couple of verses from Acts chapter 2. If you've got a Bible, you might want to get it out. Otherwise, it'll be on the screen. And then in a minute, I'll give you some context to it. But the verses I want to read say this. Peter is speaking, and he says, God has raised this Jesus to life. Been crucified, he's been raised to life. And we are all witnesses of it, he says. Exalted to the right hand of God, he, Jesus, has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit and has poured out what you now see and hear. Let me give you the setting then for Peter's statements here in Acts chapter 2. Jesus was crucified 50 days ago before Peter's speaking here. He ascended to heaven just 10 days ago. And he left his disciples 10 days ago in a state of great expectation. Really great heightened expectation. Because he'd said to them, do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you've heard me speak about. For John, remember John, he baptized you with water. But in a few days, hence their heightened expectation, you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. In a few days. Well, a few days have gone by, 10 days to be precise. And at the start of Acts chapter 2, we're told that 120 believers, that's all, that might be this block are gathered together on the day of Pentecost. And as they are gathered on the day of Pentecost, in a great expectation following Jesus' instruction, suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind, not a real wind, but the sound like the blowing of a violent wind, came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be, you can see how hard he's finding it to describe what's going on. Sounded like it, seemed like tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Well, they spill out onto the streets. They've been given the gift of tongues and people who have gathered for this festival from all over the place, different nations, can hear these 120 speaking, declaring the praises of God in their own languages. And then Peter stands up to explain. And what he says is this, this What is happening is what Joel prophesied. These people are neither drunk nor crazy nor lost the plot. Verse 17 of Acts chapter 2. This is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. In the last days, which they were now in, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy, your young men will see visions, your old men will dream dreams. I will pour out my spirit in those days. That's what's happening, he says. And then he goes on to explain about Jesus. He says a number of things about Jesus. He says, you know, 
You people listening, you know that Jesus has been around here. You know that he's been doing extraordinary miracles. You know, or him, I'm declaring that this is God who has been accrediting him to you with signs and wonders and miracles. You crucified him, yet it was part of God's plan. But God has raised him from the dead. So he's speaking about this is what is happening in front of you. What Joel prophesied about the Holy Spirit. He's then talking about Jesus and then he joins these two dots crucially. He joins these two dots, the death, the resurrection, the ascension of Jesus and the outpouring of the Spirit when he says what I read to you. Exalted to the right hand of God, he, Jesus, has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit and has poured out what you now see and hear. The Holy Spirit has been sent by Jesus because he has been exalted to the right hand of God. This is happening in front of you, crowd, because that happened. Because he lived and died and rose again and ascended, he is now pouring out his Holy Spirit as he promised. The Spirit who was prophesied and promised is poured out by Jesus. What a day. Remarkable day. The most dramatic of days. For Jews in that area, an extraordinary day. We knew God would send his Spirit on all flesh at some time. This is it. It's very significant that these events are happening on precisely this day, the day of Pentecost. Pentecost means 50th. And the day was so called because it was the 50th day after the beginning of harvest. Passover happened, the beginning of the, part of the harvest happened. 50 days later, they celebrated Pentecost at a feast of seven weeks, plus one day, the 50th day afterwards. came to, to be known as the day of Pentecost, the 50th day in the Old Testament. And now, here... Sorry, 50 days after that annual celebration, Passover happens. We celebrate and remember God's deliverance of us from Egypt. 50 days later, we celebrate this harvest coming. The blessing of God has come. He's provided for us once again. His gifts are with us once again. Fast forward now to the day of Pentecost that we've just read about. And 50 days after the Passover lamb was sacrificed, the spotless, blemished, unblemished lamb was sacrificed, God is again pouring out his blessing, his provision. The gifts of God are coming. It's really significant that it's this Day, what the Old Testament promised and prophesied and foretold, as we repeatedly know, know, Jesus fulfills, doesn't he? That's why it's on this day of Pentecost. And also in the centuries before Jesus came, the day of Pentecost also became a celebration of the giving of the law at Mount Sinai, which was believed to have happened 50 days after the first Passover. And so on this day, God is pouring out his gift of the Holy Spirit on this significant day. And they're also remembering from the Old Testament, God said he would pour out a new law, 
a law that would be written on our hearts. That's what they're celebrating as well. Ezekiel speaks about it. I will give you a new heart, God says through Ezekiel, and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh, and I will put my spirit in you to move you to follow my decrees. This day of Pentecost, all of this stuff in the Old Testament is being poured out on the people of God for their blessing. All of which is, of course, what Jesus himself had promised. John 14, 15, 16. You might be aware, you might remember, the shocking statement Jesus made in John chapter 14. It was this. It is for your good that I am going away. One of the disciples listening there, at least one of them must have said, or at least must have thought, this is utterly crazy talk. We have just discovered that you are the Messiah. We believe in you. We're getting a growing understanding of what you've come to do. And now you're saying you're leaving. That is utterly nuts. Maybe even Peter wasn't brave enough to put it quite like that. You've just come. What do you mean you're leaving, you're going? How can that possibly be for our good that you're going? But it was for their good in two ways at least. Firstly, when he ascended, it meant that he had accomplished his work. He would have died. He would have risen again. He would have ascended. He would have completed his sacrificial work of redeeming his people. That's for their good. But particularly in John 14, 15, 16, Jesus explains this. Unless I go away, the advocate, the Holy Spirit, will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. It is for our good, for their good, that Jesus came and won all that he did for us and then left and ascended. Because in his ascension, as Acts 2 tells us, he pours out his spirit for our good. The advocate who Jesus said would come alongside to help us, who would empower us, who would lead us into truth, who would testify about Jesus, who would glorify Jesus in and through his people. This is what the prophets foretold. This is what Jesus promised. This is happening, Peter says to the crowd, on the 50th, this particular day. And in many ways, that was a unique event. But it wasn't the only event. Because throughout the book of Acts... We have repeated instances of the Father and the Son sending the Spirit to his people. Described with a variety of phrases. Perhaps so that we can't box him in too neatly. So through the book of Acts, we're told things like this. That the Holy Spirit is poured out. That the Holy Spirit fills the believers. That they received the Holy Spirit. That the Holy Spirit came on them. That they were baptized with or in the Holy Spirit. And Jesus has been sending the Holy Spirit ever since. Isn't that a bit of good news? On a Sunday morning, he has been sending the Holy Spirit ever since to empower, to lead, to guide, to gift, 
to be God with us. He's been sending the Holy Spirit ever since because every child of God is indwelt by the Holy Spirit. Paul writes in Romans that if anyone does not have the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Christ, they do not belong to Christ. If you are a believer in Jesus here this morning, if you're following him as Lord and Savior, he is in you. He is in you. Sometimes the person next to you might wonder. Sometimes the people you live with might wonder. Sometimes you might wonder. (laughs) If you are a child of God, the life of God is in you. The life of God has been at work upon you and around you and in you, even to lead you to Jesus. Because no one comes to Jesus without being enabled to do so by God himself. And then once he's with you, he doesn't take a look at you and say, oh dear, that's a bit of a disappointment. Sorry, I didn't mean to look at you deliberately. That's, That's a disappointing one. I think I'll leave. No, the Holy Spirit promised in the Old Testament, promised, prophesied in the Old Testament, promised by Jesus has been sent, and he knows what he's taking on. (laughs) He knows when he took you on what he was taking on. He's not shocked. He's not surprised. He hasn't decided to leave. Every child of God is indwelt by God himself. Now, that should never lead to pride, but it should lead to dignity. You look at yourself in the mirror in the morning, sometimes it's not a pretty sight, is it? Sometimes you look at your life and think, oh my goodness, what is going on? What have I become? Next time you look in the mirror, tell yourself this, the spirit of the living God is in there. That won't lead you to any pride because it's not you who's in you that you're praising, it's the Holy Spirit is in you but it will bring some dignity and some identity and some peace and some confidence. He is in you. Isn't that amazing? The God who flung stars into space, the son who died on the cross, the God who knows everything, everywhere, all the time, who fills everything in every way, lives in you. And secondly, we've just kind of said it, God empowers every one of his children with his spirit. Not only dwells in, but he empowers every one of his children with his spirit. To know him and to live the life that he's called us to. So in the New Testament, we're told the Holy Spirit lives in us so that we may know God's love deep inside. I not only know that God loves me because it's objectively true, I know God's love me. God loves me because subjectively I feel it, I know it. Not always at the same point, but I know it. I feel it, I'm assured of it inside. That's the Holy Spirit's presence. We're empowered for mission. We receive gifts for service. We He gives us power to even grow in Christ-likeness. Maybe you're not arrived yet. Maybe you're not all that you hope in God you will be one day, but you're not what you were. Is that not true? You're not what you were. What is it that caused you to get from what you were to what you are and will be to where you're going? 
Well, I've tried really hard. I've read the Bible once a year for the last 10 years. I've been at church for I don't know how many weeks in a row. I'm a pretty good person, thank you very much. Not in the slightest. Any increase in grace, any Christ-likeness requires our cooperation perhaps, but is by the power of the Spirit in us. He is enabling us to grow, to become more like Jesus. There's a modern notion of uh, treating your body like a temple. Have you heard of that? I hope none of you are trying to do it in a weird way. Treat your body like a temple. If you, if you treat yourself really well like this precious thing, it will be fine with you. Well, there's obviously some good healthy stuff in there. But the New Testament teaching is that our bodies are temples. Temples of the Holy Spirit. And we together are a dwelling in the Spirit. We are a temple in the Spirit. I don't know if you realized when you came in this morning, you came into a temple. Not in a weird historic way, but you came in to the people of God. Where is God in his people, among his people? The whole concept of temple in the Old Testament was that's where God most dwells. And then Jesus came. He is the temple most fully. He is where God is because he is God. And then his body now is the temple. This is a temple of the Holy Spirit. How about that? That might just change your ideas next Sunday when you come in here. I think I'm coming into the temple. I'm coming into the place where God is. Because God is there, he's there, he's there, he's there, he's there, he's there. So he's here, wonderfully with us by his Spirit. Now here's a question. If the Holy Spirit, prophesied in the Old Testament, promised by Jesus, lives already in every follower of Jesus, why would he still be sending the Holy Spirit to us? He's in you, why is he still sending the Holy Spirit to you. Well, a couple of things. One, in the book of Acts, there are repeated experiences, repeated fillings of the Holy Spirit. So at the beginning of chapter 2 that we read, all of them were filled with the Holy Spirit. And then you read on a little bit, and chapter 4 says this, Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit. Later in chapter 4, they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. Chapter 13, and the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. Please let not there be anybody here who says, yep, I have the Holy Spirit, all well. Or I have enough of the Holy Spirit. Or I remember once 10 years ago, I remember the Holy Spirit filling me and say I'm satisfied there. We have warrant to say that he fills, and then he fills again, and then he fills again, and then he fills again, and then he fills again. And if we connect that, secondly, with Ephesians 5 verse 18, which says this. Do not get drunk on wine, Paul says, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit. What a wonderful invitation. Be filled with the Spirit. Now, there's debate. Stay with me for a minute. There's a little bit of debate around whether this phrase should be be filled with the Spirit or be filled by the Spirit. It's a genuine debate. It's unclear. The word used for that in the Greek could be either way. You have to look at the context, therefore, to find, find out which it is. Well, either is possible 
For some scholars, a lot of scholars think it's be filled by the Spirit rather than with the Spirit because of the three other uses of the word filled in Ephesians. Well, if it's... Are you still with me? Crumbs, you're doing very well. There's a lot of stuff in this. If it's be filled with the Spirit, if that's right, then the Spirit is the, if I may say, the content with which we're filled. Yeah? Be filled with the Spirit. That means the Spirit is in you. That's the content you're with, with which you're being filled. And there is a point there that if Paul is contrasting, to some degree, being drunk with wine, it's with wine in you that you would be drunk, yes? That's the content which is making you drunk. So the parallel might well be with the Spirit. But others, many say, the right reading is be filled by the Spirit because of the other uses of filled in the book of Ephesians. But then what? Filled with what? Are you still with me? I'm not sure I'm with me. Filled with the Spirit, with the content of the Spirit. Be filled by the Spirit. Well, what is it that he's filling you with? Yes? Well, then the people say, God. In chapter 3, verse 19, Paul writes in the same letter about being filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. So it's less specifically the Holy Spirit, more generally, if I may say, God who is filled you are being filled with. Anyway, let's cut that to an end. I'm not sure there's a huge amount to choose. I just wanted to be honest with you and take you on that little journey. I'm not sure there's too much to choose in the end because either way, the substance and the outcome are pretty much the same. God, if I may say, without assuming that the Trinity are all just are lacking individual personality, God is filling his people with God. Either way, He's sending his very self and sending his very life to his people. Now, I'm not sure I know a more wonderful invitation than Ephesians 5 verse 18, where Paul says, be filled by God. That's encouraging, don't you think? Most people expect Christians, do this, do that, don't do that, don't do the other. It's much more like this, be filled with God and see just what happens with your life. Now, we need to note these things. I told you there was a lot of stuff in here today, a lot of content. We should note these things to encourage you about being filled with or by the Spirit. The first is this. Paul's statement is a command. It's not a polite suggestion or a request. Paul is saying, do this. Be filled with by the Spirit. It's a command. We're to obey that just as we're to obey love one another. Secondly, it's a continuous command. The sense of it is this. Go on being filled with or by the Spirit. Daily. Hourly. Who knows? Because we constantly need Him. Thirdly, the outcome of the command is largely seen in our love for God and love for one another. That's what the context tells us. What does it look like to be filled with the Spirit? Well, it means miracles there. It means healings there. It means this and that and the other. Yes, but in context, 
It most particularly means that the life and love of God in us will point us to love God and love people. Which is not surprising, given that the greatest command was to do what? Love God and love one another. What's the spirit? Well, it's not surprising. The Spirit comes to enable us to do exactly what Jesus said was the greatest thing to do. Thirdly, the command must be to put ourselves in a position to be filled. You can't make yourself be filled. Because it's the Holy Spirit who's filling you. It's not you who's filling you. Or give me a glass of water. I can do that. I can't make the Holy Spirit fill me. But yet there's a command. Be filled with the Holy Spirit. I would say it's a little bit like this. If I gave you a command and said, be warmed by the sun, Nick. You might say, fat chance in this summer. (laughs) But actually today, you could probably obey that command. And you could go outside and you could be warmed by the sun. Who's warming him? What's warming him? The sun. He's not warming himself, but he's put himself in a position to be warmed. Everybody, put yourself in a position of being open to God, as we'll get to in a minute, to be filled with the Spirit. Because he is very willing and very able. And Paul is anticipating a discernible effect in people because of being filled. See, he compares and contrasts being filled with and by the Holy Spirit with being drunk on wine. Not because those who are filled with the Spirit behave in an inebriated fashion, but because there is a change that happens discernibly, albeit in very different directions. The internal filling leads to internal change, which leads to external changes. I remember my first experience, I would say, of being filled with the Holy Spirit, baptized in the Holy Spirit. I remember someone praying for me. Maybe this just fits my personality. I don't know. So they prayed for me, and I felt nothing. I'm not saying that's an experience to head for for you. But that's just what happened. First time. Absolutely, I felt nothing. The person who was praying for me, interestingly, you should be very careful about this, he said to me, believe you've been filled. Well, yeah, okay. Anyway, I went back, that was at a youth camp, I went back to my home church, and the very next Sunday, the pastor came to me, and he said, see what a difference he makes? I thought, that's interesting. My faith had grown. My confidence in God was definitely different. I didn't know there was any discernible effect, but something about me, the pastor could see see the difference. He knew where I'd been. He knew someone had prayed for me. There is a discernible difference. Being filled with the Holy Spirit is not to be understood in the static sense of a glass being filled. Well, that's a nice full glass. It's doing absolutely nothing. It's static. It's fixed. As if it could be filled right up to the top and stay static. It should be seen in the empowering sense of the sail of a boat being filled. 
The sail, filled with wind, drives the boat in a windward direction. The filling of God will lead you in a Godward direction. It will lead you in all the ways the New Testament describes about what it is to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Martin Lloyd-Jones famously said this, The Christian life, after all, is a life. It is a power. It is an activity. The very essence of the Christian life, according to the New Testament teaching everywhere, is that it is a mighty power that enters into us. It is a life, if you like, pulsating in us. Isn't that wonderful? There's life in you. There's energy. There's God pulsating his life in you. So Jesus, you have sent your spirit as you promised. And Jesus, send your spirit. I've only ever once been in what's been termed a revival. It was in the 1990s in Florida, in the United States. There was a move of God going on, and someone suggested I go and see, so I went to see. It was a fascinating experience, a very good one. And the story of those remarkable events around that revival were written up and then summarized in this beautiful way. God's presence was tangible at last. What a beautiful statement. Oh, to be full of God. Having said all of that, is anyone thirsty? Anybody? Thirsty for the life of God in their souls? If you are thirsty... I have the best news for you, the very best news. Without giving you all the context and background, here's why it's good news. On the last and greatest day of the festival, Jesus stood and said in a loud voice, Let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow from within them, by which he meant the Spirit. Is anybody thirsty? Anybody thirsty for more of God, for his coming in by his Spirit, for being drenched in his Spirit, for being empowered by his Spirit, for being filled with his Spirit? Here's the good news Jesus says, if anyone is thirsty, so you're thirsty. You're thirsty, you're thirsty. Come and drink and expect and anticipate that he will fill you with his power. Sometimes that looks very dramatic. You may have been in meetings where you think, my goodness, what's going on? God is dramatically dealing with someone. And other times it's very quiet and very gentle and hardly discernible, but you know that's God. So why don't we say, whether you're here or online, Lord, I'm thirsty. Anybody need help to live this life God's called them to? Yes, yes, and yes. Why don't we just stand? And why don't you close your eyes? You might not even be a Christian here today, but you're thinking... Man, if this is real, I've tried this and I've tried that and I've tried the other. I need some power to live this life. Well, the only true satisfying power is God himself.
If anyone is thirsty, let him come and drink. Why don't you close your eyes and just start saying, Lord, I am thirsty. I'm thirsty. Start talking to him. Lord, we're thirsty people. This is a dry land. This is a tough life sometimes. We know you in part. We want to know you more. Lord, we're thirsty. We're thirsty. We're thirsty. We're thirsty for God. Come, Holy Spirit. You are very present. Come and manifest your presence. Dramatic ways, quiet ways. We don't mind. We just need God. Come, Holy Spirit. So here's what I'm going to suggest. I'm going to suggest we be very brave and we start praying. Because we're very polite. We might need some help from our African friends who are very good at praying. Is that not right? There's one. It's more than that. Let's start praying. I'll turn my microphone off. Let's start praying. Lord, I'm hungry. I'm thirsty. I need you, Lord. Some of you have never prayed this before. Start praying it. Jesus said, if anyone's thirsty, come, drink. Keep asking. Sometimes singing is a great way to respond to God and say, we're thirsty, we need you, Holy Spirit. Let's sing, and then we'll come back and pray. I particularly feel that there may be people here, maybe lots of people here, who have never had anybody pray for them to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Today, in a few minutes, I'm going to ask you to come forward, and we will pray for you. But we're all saying, Lord, we are thirsty. Let's keep reaching to him.